Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 18th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... People with training who can use judgment and context can make decisions on the spot on Mars or on uh, asteroids or back on the moon. That's Jim Bell, an astronomer and planetary scientist at Cornell University. We'll talk to him this week, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Jim Bell is intimately involved in the Mars rover mission, and he has an opinion piece in the forum section of the August issue of Scientific American about robotic versus human spaceflight. To find out more about both subjects, I called Bell at his office at Cornell. Hi, Professor Bell. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Steve. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you. So, uh, first of all, you're the leader of the PanCam team on the planet Mars right now. Uh, tell us about that and, 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 you know, how long has, has that, uh, taken out of your life and what have been some of the real challenges and, and rewards of working on that? Well, the, the PanCams are the color cameras on the Mars rover's spirit and opportunity. And we have a team of about, uh, 20 or so people here at Cornell and uh, dozens and dozens of other people at JPL and around the country who are who have been working with the uh, the rovers uh, every day for more than three and a half years now, uh, collecting uh, camera pictures and other data from the surface of Mars. Uh, we use the, uh, the the camera data, of course, to learn about the geology, to uh, to help to drive the rovers from place to place uh, with the uh, the rover drivers at JPL. Uh, to, to figure out where to put the arm down to make detailed chemical measurements of the surface, and of course to take uh, just spectacular and oftentimes very beautiful photos uh, of Mars. Uh, the cameras were were designed and built to to try to simulate what we would see if we were there with sort of 2020 human vision. They can see in color. They can also see in the ultraviolet and the infrared. So they're a little better than human vision in many ways, but but they provide our our best view. Uh, so far, of what Mars would look like if we were there ourselves. Talk a little bit about about the book you have with some of those amazing images. Yeah, uh, the the book is a, sort of a, a, a typical kind of coffee table book called Postcards from Mars, and uh, it was an, an attempt to showcase sort of the best uh, 150 or so photos, uh, including some large fold-out panoramas from uh, what are now more than almost 200,000 photos uh, from the uh, from the mission. So uh, it's really an attempt to kind of capture the greatest hits, both from the standpoint of science, but also just beauty. Some of the some of the shots that these these rovers have taken on Mars are just absolutely beautiful, uh, evocative, poetic, uh, desolate. I mean, so many adjectives. I've run out of adjectives to describe the uh, the. Uh, these photos. Well, you know, picture is worth at least a thousand words. Probably more when you have pictures of a of an alien landscape. There, at least a thousand kilobytes. I'm not sure about it. <laughs> okay, tell tell me about what's going on on Mars right now. I've I've heard about this gigantic dust storm, and where does that put the rovers? Right. Well, Mars has dust storms all the time. Uh, most of them are, are relatively small, but occasionally, like right now. Uh, they grow to be larger and they spread over uh, large parts of the planet. So there's uh, a large region of the southern hemisphere and the, the equatorial region of Mars that's uh, that's being covered by this dust storm. And the dust storms don't don't really uh, 
provide any physical danger to the rovers. They don't shake the rovers around or abrade them or anything like that. What the danger is is that they, they block the sunlight. They produce these dusty clouds in the atmosphere. This, the scenery gets very dark. The terrain gets very dark because the sun gets blotted out. And these rovers, are they, they live by sunlight. They, they need solar power on their solar panels to recharge the batteries, to run the instruments every day. And so uh, as the dust is blocking out the sun, they're sort of choking off our lifeline to power. Uh, and that's the, that's the risk. Now, so far, they've been able to sort of survive uh, in uh, quite well, uh, even though the dust is very high. Uh, we basically put them into a mode of uh, sort of a survival mode. We don't do any driving. We don't do a lot of activity. We just monitor the sunlight and, uh, and just keep track of, of the variations from day to day as the storm is going on. Uh, however, if the storm continues or gets even more intense and blocks out even more sunlight, and maybe even some of that dust might settle onto the solar panels blocking out even more sunlight, then we could be in a very, uh, a very risky situation in that we might not have enough power generated each day to recharge the batteries to run the heaters at night, and so we would have to dip into the batteries more and more and more every day. We would eventually discharge them entirely. But we don't uh, anticipate that happening. Uh, we, of course, don't know how long that would really take to go into that sort of so-called death spiral with a rover. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's a potential thing that could happen. So we're obviously watching the storm very closely. So the rovers are like uh, professional athletes that you hear about who are slightly injured. They're, they're day-to-day. They're day to day. That's right. They are. They are day to day, um, and and they do have uh, some, you know, uh, little uh, bumps and uh, small uh, minor ailments here and there. The uh, the right front wheel has stopped working on the Spirit Rover. The uh, the the, uh, the arm on the Opportunity Rover is is flaky. Uh, works on some days, doesn't work on other days. So they are showing their signs of age, but. Uh, they still are definitely in the major leagues and still uh, pitching good games. And let's remind everybody that these things were designed for a uh, a useful life of what is it again? Ninety days. They were designed for right ninety days on Mars, and uh, right now we're at twelve hundred and fifty-six on Spirit. So you've you've done pretty well so far. Is there any kind of a uh, a system in place to to get dust off of the collection panels, off of the solar panels? No, uh, not uh, not intentionally, at least. Uh, we um, we thought about uh, designing, you know, some kind of a wiper or something like that. But you know, it's it's a shell game. If you put something on like that, you have to take something else off because you can only get so much mass and volume into the rocket. And we decided to not put a system like that on, and just take the chance that we'd be able to survive at least ninety days. And we obviously you know, won that bet had no problem surviving 90 days and much longer. Right, and it right. turns out that, that Mars itself has helped us a lot. When we get up to a, a windy ridge, uh, the wind has blown the dust off the solar panels. It happened uh, during our first Martian summer several years ago. It's happened right now. The, we're in Martian summer again. It happened a month and a half ago on Spirit. It's happened just in the last few days on Opportunity. Wind comes along, blows the dust off, and our power goes up. It reminds me, there's a punchline to an old joke, you know, if, I, if I'd if known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> if you'd known it was going to last 1,200 days, maybe you would have put a wiper on it. But... I don't know, maybe. 
So uh, let's talk about your your forum piece in the current issue of Scientific American. It's called Have Brain Must Travel. Right. And it's an interesting take from somebody who is so intimately involved in unmanned missions into space. But uh, why, why don't you tell us what your what your opinion is on this whole well, issue? I, Steve, I think the common assumption is that, that there's sort of two camps. There's the robot people who, who do robotic exploration, and then there's the human astronaut people who, who work on that side of NASA, and that you have to have, if you support robots, you're against human exploration and, and vice versa. And one of the points of, of my piece is that that's, that just ain't so. Uh, there are plenty of people who do robotic exploration work, like myself, who are very strong supporters of human exploration. I mean, that's what got me and many of my colleagues into the business in the first place, you know, watching guys bounce around on the moon, watching people uh, in Skylab and, and Space Shuttle. And, you know, the, those, those are the adventures. Those are the, the human interest stories. Those are the, the dramas that, that capture the attention of the public and, and kids who are eventually going to go on to to get into these kinds of science and engineering fields. And so um, the first premise is that uh, just because you're for robotic exploration doesn't mean you're against human exploration. But even more importantly than that, I, I try to make the case that I think if you are a supporter of robotic exploration, uh, I think you ought to be a supporter of human exploration because they're very intimately linked. Uh, one of the reasons why we have this very successful robotic exploration program, and it is phenomenally successful. I mean, just if you think about the places that we've sent these robotic emissaries in the past few decades, uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. Some of the greatest achievements of NASA in the last few decades have been through the robotic program. But the reason that we have this successful robotic program is, in my opinion, uh, has a lot to do with the public support and enthusiasm for the human exploration program. And that, of course, was at its apex during Apollo, when the entire point was to you know, beat the uh, beat the Soviet Union to the moon, show the the power of freedom and democracy. It was really a, a political statement that had some wonderful scientific and exploration side effects uh, to it. And the uh, the success of the robotic program really started during the Apollo missions. The robotic program was this very very successful in support of and even in some sense riding the coattails of the Apollo program. And one of the things that I worry about more recently is that uh, there is less and less support uh, in the public for the human exploration program. Certainly the, the shuttle and the space station haven't turned out to be the kinds of, of programs that really capture public interest, that, that capture the imagination of, of kids and and that really inspire the public. That hasn't happened. And so uh, I worry that if that doesn't happen, if there isn't an invigorated program, a long-term effort to, say, send astronauts to the moon or near-Earth asteroids or Mars or make some exciting, compelling, destination-driven human exploration program, if that doesn't happen, then I, I worry that the robotic program is going to wither as well because the robotic program... I believe, is just as dependent upon that public support for the space program overall. I, I was going to ask you what, what you thought the primary places that we should send people were, and I guess you, you covered it, the moon, Mars, and, and uh, near-Earth asteroids. Well, the, those are, I mean, more than the primary places, those are the only places uh, right now. I mean, uh, no, nobody's 
really thinking hard about uh, sending humans to the, the the outer solar system, for example. It's a fundamentally different scale of problem. Uh, you get farther from the sun, you need different power sources, the travel times are enormous, so that dictates a very different kind of a vehicle as opposed to a, a few-day trip to the moon or maybe a six-month or nine-month trip to Mars. Those seem to be manageable within sort of current technologies and current thinking about long-duration spaceflight. But now sending people out uh, way into the outer solar system, we're not there yet. It, it's coming. That day is coming, but we're not there yet. So the near-term destinations are, you know, close to home, the moon, near-Earth asteroids, and then the closest... Uh, place that we can get to uh, easily that's not within the near-Earth environment is Mars. I mean, Venus is close too, but that's a hellish environment on the surface, and we just don't have the, the technology to, to get people down there to survive in that environment yet. And what do we mean by near-term? Um, what I mean by near-term is in the next several decades, and um, a lot of my thinking on this was framed by a, a very interesting uh, op-ed piece that uh, NASA Administrator Mike Griffin wrote uh, recently for, I think it was for Space News, where he tried to think about the next 50 years of NASA. I mean, this is the time to do it because this is the 50th anniversary year of NASA, so had a half century of, of space exploration. What could the next half century look like? Um, and, uh, you know, he tries to lay out, you know, how this uh, this this proposed program for or Moon and Mars, uh, could evolve over the next few decades. If it has, and I, I think this is, this is the key, if it just has constant public support. And, um, you know, if you look back the, throughout NASA's first 50 years, there's sort of a historical level, budget level of support, and, and, and public support is often expresses itself as the, the budget level uh, uh, granted to a program by Congress. I mean, Congress is representing the public, after all. And he makes the case, which I think is a very compelling one, and, and I want to learn more about this myself. He makes the case that if NASA is just funded at the same level that it has been for the next 50 years, the same level that it's been for the past 50 years, uh, then we should be able to do things like sending people to the moon perhaps even sending them onto Mars within the next several decades uh, if if we can just maintain our focus. If we can take this uh, this gift of the taxpayers to spend on this uh, this enterprise and just apply it towards a, a focused, a well-directed, sort of destination-driven, modular kind of program to get uh, people reliably back uh, into space and out of low-Earth orbit. Now, there's, you know, a lot of assumptions that go into that, and there's uh, a lot of hopeful thinking about, you know, what the national budgets are going to be like and whether, uh, you know, the country will head down some different path that uh, we'll, we'll see less and less support for human space exploration. Uh, but I, I want to remain optimistic. And uh, so, you know, in my optimistic viewpoint, I think we're talking about the next several decades. What do you get by sending people to a near-Earth asteroid or to Mars that you don't get with a robotic mission in addition to the actual experience of having human beings there and, and the inspiration that, that that carries. I mean, what do you actually get 
from a scientific viewpoint, what do you get to do that you can't do robotically? Well, there's no specific one specific answer to that question, um, but I can I can give you an example that I sort of talk about in the uh, the opinion piece in Scientific American, and that has to do with uh, the ability of scientists, say geologists, for example, to use judgment to react to a situation. And this was uh, something that we actually saw in the in some of the Apollo missions, like the Apollo 17, for example. Uh, Harrison Schmidt is a geologist, and he was on the ground and turned and saw something that in his judgment was important. It's not clear that that would have been picked out by a robotic algorithm or even seen by uh, a robotic mission, even sort of joysticked by people from the Earth. And This is different kinds of glasses with different chemical compositions that he could spot from his his training, his experience, his context. Well, I think the same kinds of things are going to happen on Mars or on uh, asteroids or back on the moon in that uh, people with training who can use judgment and context can make decisions on the spot for what kinds of samples to acquire, how to dig or where to acquire samples uh, that uh, just can't be put into a computer program, that can't be processed autonomously by a, a robotic mind. Robotic brains are, are good. They're getting better all the time. But I, I, I don't know if we'll ever pass that threshold where, where they'll have the same kind of judgment uh, and learn from experience, learn from context capabilities that that human scientists do. I mean, this is why we do our field work on the Earth. We go to these places. We study them in person wherever we possibly can. Uh, and so that kind of experience, context, judgment, it's impossible to quantify, right? I can't tell you, well, we're going to get 18% more science because of this. It's impossible to, to put it in that kind of a framework. But will people be able to discover things, notice things, take a hunch, uh, and, and head down a path that leads to something entirely new and unexpected? Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's critical to send people. It's interesting you mentioned Harrison Schmidt. I was I was going to tell you a story about Harrison Schmidt. I was on a uh, an eclipse trip in 1991, and Harrison Schmidt was uh, was also on the trip to see a total solar eclipse. And Schmidt gave a, a talk in which he actually expressed the the kind of existential viewpoint of of the reason to do things, just in terms of. The most, I think it, he said something like the most important aspect of, of all of this, and he was talking about both going to the moon and seeing this solar eclipse, is the human experience that you get from it. So Schmidt, who, as you just pointed out, brought his scientific training to bear on the moon, still thought that the most important aspect of his trip was as a representative of humanity experiencing this for us and for himself. Well, look, I would agree with you. You to, you framed the question. You told me not to include inspirational kind of stuff. So right. I didn't. But I would completely agree with you. I think that uh, probably number one is is that inspirational, motivational, educational, non-quantifiable aspect of people pushing the edge that you know we can experience what it's like being there by having some of our colleagues from this planet being there for us. We're seeing the place through their eyes. We're experiencing it through their emotions. Uh, and that 
is a huge driver, much, much more important driver, in my opinion, than, uh, than most of the scientific goals that we could come up with. I mean, maybe finding life on Mars would, would be a pretty big driver. Okay, so that might be the one exception. But uh, uh, for most uh, sort of the, the average everyday people who support the space program, it is that feeling of projecting ourselves through our colleagues or our, through our friends, through these very brave people who put themselves on the top of the rocket uh, who are going to experience a place for us. I think that's a huge, huge factor. Uh, and, and that kind of enthusiasm, we've seen it trickle down into the robotic program, too, the way that these rovers are anthropomorphized, the way that people relate to them, partly because they give us a human-like experience of seeing through human-like eyes, of, of driving around, moving from place to place, of touching the ground with an arm and making some detailed measurements, sensing it. Uh, I think that's a, that kind of emotional connection and trickle-down comes through the human exploration program. The piece is in the August Scientific American. It's called Have Brain, Must Travel by Jim Bell. Professor Bell, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Steve. It's been great fun. Jim Bell's article is also available free on our website. Just go to www.siam.com and scroll all the way down to the forum section for the piece titled again, Have Brain, Must Travel. Speaking of traveling, we'll be right back. Send your science videos to Scientific American and see if yours becomes a featured video. Follow the simple instructions at siam.com slash video submit. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, teenage girls' willingness to discuss their personal problems with friends helps them compared with more sullen and solitary teenage boys. Story two, reformed wildlife poachers in Zambia are selling jewelry made from the wire snares once used to catch the animals. Story three, brightly colored birds around Chernobyl are more more affected by the toxic environment than are drab birds. And story four, earthquakes along the ocean floor are smaller than you'd expect because seafloor faults are different than theory would have them. Time's up. Story four is true. Many earthquakes in the deep ocean are much smaller than expected. And researchers from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, writing in the July 12th issue of the journal Nature, think they know why. Plate tectonic theory says that transform faults should be long fault lines on the seafloor. But the faults are, in fact, much more segmented and show signs of recent or current volcanism. And with the faults busted up, the earthquakes are damped down. Story three is true. Drab birds are doing better in Chernobyl, possibly because brightly colored birds expend their antioxidant molecules on flashy pigments, while drab birds can use antioxidants to detox. For more, check out the July 18th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story two is true. Former poachers in Zambia are selling necklaces and bracelets made from the wire snares formerly used to trap wildlife. It's part of a program by the Wildlife Conservation Society in which poachers can turn in snares and guns in exchange for training in farming, carpentry, and jewelry making. Over 40,000 snares and 800 firearms have been turned in with thousands of animals estimated to have been saved. For more, check out www.itswild.org. All of which means that story one about teen girls being better off because they talk to their girlfriends about personal problems is totally bogus. Because teenage girls ruminating together about problems may actually help contribute 
to emotional difficulties. That's according to a study in the July issue of the journal Developmental Psychology. Researchers found that girls are more likely than boys of the same age group to develop anxiety and depression as a result of extensive conversations with their friends about their problems. Researchers call such conversations co-rumination. And for girls, co-rumination did indeed help the friendship, but the study also found an increase in depressive and anxiety symptoms, which in turn contributed to greater co-rumination. Interestingly, for boys, co-rumination seemed to help the friendship but did not increase depression and anxiety. For college kids, co-rumination usually begins as soon as they move off campus. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.